This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Robert Trug. Dr. Trug is the Francis Glessner Lee Professor of Medical Ethics, Anesthesia, and Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. He is also the Executive Director of the Institute for Professionalism and Ethical Practice at Boston Children's Hospital, where he is also a Senior Associate in Critical Care Medicine. Bob, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. Uh, Bob, in, in your role as Executive Director of the Institute for Professionalism and Ethical Practice, um, you have established a program on how to counsel uh, patients, their families, um, after an adverse event or medical error. Uh, and um, as we both know, that must be a very difficult conversation. Can you tell us about this program? Uh, what motivated it uh, to begin and um, where has it gone? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, oftentimes when uh, I teach about this topic, I begin with a story from my own life that I think has shaped a lot of how I uh, have thought about these issues and goes back quite a ways uh, to when I was a junior pediatric resident and uh, there was an evening um, where I was in the emergency department and as was not uncommon at that time uh, I was by myself there was really no supervision around. I remember that I saw a little nine-year-old boy who had uh, some URI symptoms and a fever and I went in and I did a history and a physical. Uh, I got a CBC and a blood culture and I gave him some acetaminophen. And then I went off to see some of the other patients that were in the emergency department at the time. I came back uh, probably 30, 40 minutes later and his fever was down, he was looking terrific, he was playful. And so I sent him home with a diagnosis of a viral upper respiratory infection. The following morning, uh, I got a call from the laboratory that his blood culture was positive for pneumococcus. And we got out the file, we went to the home, we brought him back in, but by this time he was really pretty sick and he went directly to the intensive care unit and ended up being diagnosed with pneumococcal sepsis and meningitis. And uh, he survived, but unfortunately with pretty significant neurological injury and ultimately was discharged with a tracheostomy and a G-tube. Later on in that morning, um, I got called to my chief resident's office. And uh, I remember going down there and uh, sitting with her. And she said, you know, Bob, I've been going over the charts from the, uh, from the ED last evening. And I, I, I just have to ask you about you know, this one and what you were thinking. And so I told her. And uh, she said, but but what did you think about the white count of 40,000? And you know, it was that moment, it was like being, being hit in the face. I, I remembered that I had drawn this lab, but I'd forgotten to check it. And you know, obviously if I'd seen that lab, I never would have sent him home. And in that moment, I was just devastated. I was stunned, I didn't know what to say. And after some rather awkward moments, I guess, she said, you know, this isn't a good thing, and if this were to get out, it would really affect your reputation in the program. 
and she says, I'm not really sure how to handle this, but I think you've been a pretty good resident, and um, how about if we just keep this between the two of us and just make sure that this never, ever happens again? And, you know, indeed, that, that is what happened. Um, nobody ever knew about the event. My colleagues never knew about it. The, the child's family certainly never knew about it. And I went on to be chief resident myself, and over the next couple of, of years, he was admitted a number of times to the intensive care unit with aspiration pneumonias. And, um, and I never told anybody. And I went on to other things and lost track of him. But even, you know, even today, I still wonder if he is still alive and what the impact of my error um, had on that patient and family. So it's something that has really never left me. Um, now, you know, why do, I, why do I tell the story? I mean, um, it's not a perfect story for, for many reasons, obviously. Uh, but I do tell it because I think that we don't talk about this often enough. And I think that um, stories like mine are not that uncommon. And I think it's helpful for people who are involved in events like this to, to know that, you know, it's not just about them. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're a bad doctor or a bad nurse. Um, the second reason I think uh, the story uh, is useful is that it really shows how far we've come over the past 20 years or so. You know, um, what we did at that time was, was certainly wrong, but I think it wasn't uncommon. Uh, I think keeping these events secret was, was, was actually, you know, pretty frequently done. And things have really changed. I mean, today this is completely unacceptable. We have very high expectations about honesty and transparency with families. But at the same time, those issues of, of shame and guilt, I think, are still with us. And, you know, uh, even though we did the wrong thing back then, I, I know that that chief resident was motivated by wanting to protect me and, and keep me from being hurt and uh, misguided, but it was with the, the right intentions. And I think this is still true today. These are devastating events. We'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later on. Uh, but we need to do a better job of both being open and transparent with families but also in recognizing the, the real suffering that clinicians go through. Um, and then finally, and, and maybe the most important point, is I think the, sh the story shows that if we don't talk about events like this, we, we lose the opportunities to fix the problems and make our care safer. And so, you know, here was a perfect opportunity, really, to say, uh, we've got to fix a problem in the emergency room so that critical lab results can't be missed. But because we didn't talk about that, um, that never came up, and so that, that glitch was never fixed. So, you know, those were some of the, that, that story was, was really some of what was behind my own growing interest in this area and the work that we've been doing now over the past 10 years or so. Well, Bob, um, I suspect I speak uh, for many colleagues around the world in saying that um, you have our uh, respect and admiration uh, that was very moving and uh, transparent and clearly difficult for you to convey, even now three de decades later. Um, and I know you've repeated that story, uh, at least through the Harvard Teaching Hospitals, when you've taught this special module that we're doing here today. But I, I have to stop and impress you on one point. Um, you know, we, we do make mistakes in medicine, um, and humans make errors, and um, have mental lapses. But at the same time, when I listen to that story, um, what I hear is that you were put into an environment where you weren't supported. 
um, you had a mental lapse and you didn't check a white count. But what's not being told is, and I'm sure you don't remember, is how many other patients you were seeing with no senior member to guide you when you were in your second year of training. And uh, you certainly didn't have the technology supports that we have now, which would automatically flag that white count and prompt and you know, electronic medical record. But even beyond that, that chief resident who saw you the next day in that era said, it's okay, Bob, you made a mistake and we'll keep it quiet. In the current era, the shame would be on that chief resident and her superiors for not providing a safer environment for you to practice medicine and taking care of that child. And I can't hear that story without thinking you're at least a big part of a victim in the circumstances that you were thrown into. Well, Jeff, I appreciate those comments. And, and, and I think that they do point out how the world has changed so much. And that's an, that's, that's an important point to make. Um, and I think, you know, the idea that we now see medical errors as almost always occurring within broader systems without any one person um, bearing all of that responsibility. There still is, and I think there should be, an element of, of personal accountability in the care that we provide. And uh, for all the things that you say we're lacking, it's nevertheless the case that I drew a lab, should have checked it, didn't, and it really hurt somebody. And that's never going to go away. I wonder if we could stop now and ask our colleagues around the world a question. And could you first please identify your city and country location? And the question is this, in your ICU, how often do your clinicians tell patients about errors that resulted in a preventable adverse event? A, once a day, B, once a week, C, once a month, and D, once a year. Bob, is there any data uh, to shed light on this question? How often um, do adverse events occur? Yeah, um, there's uh, not very much data, but I want to highlight one study that was done in the uh, cardiac care unit and, and in the medical ICU at the uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is just across the street from where we're sitting now. Uh, these were data from 2002 and 2003, so they're a little bit old. Um, but I, I'd be surprised if the data have changed dramatically. And what they found was that for every 1,000 patient days in the unit, there were 36 preventable adverse events. And then they broke those down in terms of severity. So out of those 36, 13 were significant, 19 severe, three life-threatening, and one was fatal. So if you think about that, um, think about a 30-bed ICU running at capacity. Uh, over the course of about a month, there will be about 1,000 uh, patient days. So if these data are close to being reflective of our own ICUs, we would expect that there would be one preventable adverse event almost every day with that distribution. I mean, you know, at least being significant and sometimes far worse. And, you know, Jeff, when I thought about that, I thought, man, that doesn't feel like my ICU. Um, that seems like much more than what we're seeing. Uh, but it gives me some pause. I mean, I, again, unless there's a real big difference between what they found and what our experience is, it may be that, that we are actually having more than we realize and also that we're having perhaps fewer conversations with patients and families than we should. And so uh, with that as kind of background, I thought we would go on from here and talk a little bit then about how to have these conversations better. 
So Bob, could you tell us about this program um, and you know, what's the framework around it and what are the general principles? Yeah, sure, Jeff. Um, we've, we've been working on this now for a number of years. And um, actually, if you look around the country, around the world, there's now a pretty good consensus about some of the, the, the principles that should be applied to having these conversations. So one of the things we've done is we've summarized these guidelines, if you will, on a two-page document. And uh, this is part of a project that we are doing, Open Pediatrics, along with the Institute for Professionalism and Ethical Practice. But um, for the conversation today, we're going to focus on a few of these guidelines that we have. Uh, we don't have time to go through all of them, but I thought you and I could maybe talk about some that I think are, are some of the most important and also most difficult. I'll say now we have a full curriculum, which is available uh, on the Open Pediatrics website. And we also have a lot of other ancillary resources, including a book, et cetera. So as we see here, Bob, uh, the first guideline is after an event has happened, a preventable adverse event, um, is to assure that the clinical team stays fully attentive to the medical needs of the patient. Uh, but as you and I both know, uh, after a preventable adverse event, the clinicians may withdraw from the patient's clinical needs, uh, fearful of uh, the patient's anger or preoccupied with implications of the event for themselves. So how do, how do we overcome this? Yeah, so, I mean, we put this one first, Jeff, because I think it's, it's, it's so important. And as, as you and I have seen over and over again, whenever there's a serious uh, adverse event in the unit, um, uh, people are overwhelmed. I mean, they feel, they feel horrible for what's just happened to the patient. Uh, they feel horrible themselves. They're not thinking clearly. Um, and there's a tendency to be thinking more about the unit and ourselves rather than remembering that our first priority always has to be to take care of the patient. And so um, that's the number one thing to remember. And if the clinicians are not capable of doing that themselves, then they need to get people who can help them. So it's pretty obvious, but it's one of the most important things to remember after an adverse event, continue to take care of the patient. How does a, a, a clinician know uh, if they've reached the threshold where they should be asking for help? Because every one of us is gonna walk in the room feeling fearful, feeling unsure about the relationship from that point forward, and, um, and be met perhaps with anger initially. So when is it appropriate to continue to hang in there and just work through a very difficult time? And how do you know when you've reached the point where, no, this is a scenario where for yourself or for everyone involved, you need to be calling in help? Well, it's a great question. I don't have a simple answer for that. I think it's one of the areas where uh, experience can be very helpful. We'll talk later about the value of having people in the unit or in the hospital who are uh, very experienced with how to manage these events. But, but certainly for people in leadership roles to recognize that your clinicians may not be functioning at their best and recognizing that they need to get out of that scenario and we need to get people in who are capable of taking care of the patient could be very important. What if you're in an environment where, frankly, uh, you're it? Uh, you don't have someone, a senior colleague, uh, that you can call in. Um, what are the steps yeah. you can take to try to, to deal with that? Tough situation, but I think even the self-awareness that that's happening could be what you need in order to, to really pull it together and do what needs to be done to make sure that that patient is cared for. I wonder if I could turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. Could you first please state your city and country location in your answer? And the question is this, 
Should all medical errors be disclosed to patients and families as you practice it in your ICU? If not, how do you decide which should be disclosed? So Bob, let's go to the second uh, principle here in the uh, document. Determine if the adverse event meets the threshold requiring disclosure. A useful rule of thumb is that an event should be disclosed if, one, you would want to know about the event if it happened to you or a relative, or two, it may result in a change in the patient's treatment. For the first clause there, uh, if you would want to know yourself, there's a lot of individual leeway there, which on the one hand is maybe a useful rule of thumb, but the other hand leaves a lot of discretion and one practitioner or one unit might be disclosing a lot more than another for reasons that really can't be objective. So, you know, Jeff, I, I think this is a really important question because some of the critics around uh, disclosure will make the point that in every hospital, every day, there's probably hundreds of things that don't go perfectly. And so they'll say, you know, if, if we're going to be talking to families around every single thing that doesn't go perfectly, we're not going to have any time to take care of the patients. And they're right. So we do need to have some thresholds for saying, you know, when is an event important enough that we need to have this conversation? And so one of the, the things we recommend here is a, is a version of the golden rule. Treat others the way you would want to be treated yourself. And I think it's a really good place to start. You know, if, if you look at what just happened and you think, I would want to know about that if it happened to me or somebody I loved, um, then that's probably all the information you need to know to, uh, to recognize that you need to have that conversation. Of course, it's not perfect because patients and families are not necessarily us and they don't necessarily look at the world the same way we do. Uh, they may have a different threshold for what they want to hear about. They may be more distrustful. They may be people who just want to know everything. So the golden rule is a good place to start, but it's not foolproof. And we need to be able to have the skills and the imagination to think, what does this family need? How best do I meet this family's need? Um, we also say that we should disclose if it's going to result in a change in the patient's treatment. I think um, that's pretty self-evident. One of the tricky things here is, is how we think about near misses. You know, so could have potentially been a bad adverse event, but we were able to intercept it before it harmed the patient. And I think this is an example of where the need to investigate um, events does not map perfectly with the need to disclose. Because I think very often in near misses, it's not necessary that we disclose this to the patient or family if they, if they don't otherwise know about it. We absolutely need to investigate it. We need to fix the problems. But not normally, I think, does the family actually need to have that conversation. I mean, an exception, I think you can easily imagine. Suppose a nurse walks into the room with the medication, is about to give it, and then goes, oh, no, and then, you know, walks out. Um, and obviously, the patient's going to wonder, what in the heck just happened? So those might be, you know, the rare kinds of situations where we might want to disclose a near miss. So, Bob, let me follow up on that. Um, and it's, uh, what's coming to my mind is um, the, the uh, concept of therapeutic privilege in informed consent. And as you well know, uh, at least in the United States, um, it used to be argued, uh, less so I think today, but it used to be argued um, that you could withhold uh, certain details in the informed consent process because if you gave the patient every little detail, 
um, about what's going to happen with the procedure, it would scare most human beings so much that they couldn't possibly consent. Um, I'm going to have a procedure done, and uh, the detail is going to be so gory that no human being would consent to it. Um, is there a version of that here that, um, you know, if we're telling people uh, more liberally about uh, preventable adverse events or near misses, are they going to lose, inappropriately lose confidence in the system that's really there and it can't necessarily be perfect, but really is solid, good, and strong, and that you don't want them to lose that uh, because uh, a greater harm may evolve by them losing trust and, and not seeking appropriate health care. Great question. And I do think there is a role for a therapeutic exemption in disclosure of errors, just as there is an informed consent. But it's a very, very small place because, as you can imagine, it's so easy for us to self-justify why we're not telling families because we say, oh, it's just going to cause them more pain than good if we tell them. So we need to be very self-conscious about our own motivations not to want to disclose. But there can be rare situations. I mean, you can imagine, for example, psychiatric patients for whom this information could particularly imagine you know, somebody who's paranoid, could really be harmful to their mental health. Um, to show you how careful we need to be, one of the hospitals, one of the Harvard hospitals, actually has in their policy that if the clinicians choose not to disclose, the case needs to be reviewed by the ethics committee. So it's a pretty high bar, but it does exist, so it's a good point. I wonder if I could turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. In your answer, could you first please list your city and country location? And the question is this. In your intensive care unit, when do you determine uh, that the facts should be disclosed? For example, um, should the facts be disclosed immediately after the preventable adverse event, or should the patient and family be informed of a preventable adverse event only after an investigation of that event is completed? So Bob, can we turn now to um, a third principle listed in the document here, uh, which is clearly state the facts as they are known at the present. And so you're supposed to disclose the facts as, as you understand them. And that uh, your program states that there is no legal risk to disclosing the facts as they are known at the moment, that patients deserve accurate information about what took place, and that one should be careful, uh, however, uh, not to speculate beyond the facts because initial impressions about how the facts fit together can be incomplete and at times completely erroneous. Could you expand on that? Yeah, you know, I think um, it's quite natural to want to get all of the information together before you sit down with the family and explain to them what happened. Um, the problem with that is, is that Families will often perceive this as either being stonewalled, no one's talking with them, or somebody must have made a big mistake or people would be talking to us now. And so the general principle we teach is that as soon as facts are known, they should be communicated to the family. If you think about it, they're going to come out anyway, and there's really no uh, advantage to delaying that. I'm not a lawyer and we're certainly not giving legal advice here, but as we have taught this around the country, we've had legal counsel in for all the workshops and no one's ever disagreed with that. 
There are some pitfalls here, though, and um, that is that uh, there's a tendency we have to go beyond the facts and to try to put together a whole picture and speculate. Um, you know, you think about what it is that makes a good, a good doctor or nurse. It's often the ability to walk into a situation, see a few of the facts, recognize a pattern, and, and you know, know exactly what to do. And that, that often makes for, a, for a, a really good clinician, but it can, it can work against you in this context. Uh, because, you know, when, when, when I'm sitting in front of you as a family member and you're looking at me and you say, please, give me an explanation for what happened, there's a tendency I have on the basis of a couple of facts to say, you know, here's what happened. And it can be very, very difficult to backtrack from that. You know, you can imagine, you know, coming back a week later and the family says, but, but you told us that it was the wrong medication. And you're saying, well, yeah, but now we've looked into it a little bit more and we think it's more complicated than that. It looks like you may be trying to cover up. So here's what we teach. We teach, tell the family the facts as you know them, as soon as you know them, but don't go beyond them and say to them, you know, we don't have the whole picture yet, but as we continue to investigate, we will be coming back to you and filling you in with the information just as soon as we know it. And hopefully, by the time the investigation is complete, we're gonna have a, a total explanation for you. Um, I, I think that's very sound advice. You've given that to me uh, personally in, the, in our joint care um, here at this hospital. And it, I think it, it, to me, it's, it strikes the balance between transparency and what you want to convey to the patient and the family. And at the same time, as you noted, not going beyond the facts because like a patient's diagnosis, these investigations often lead to a different place than where you thought it was going. Exactly. Right. And so it's prudent to uh, not go beyond the facts. But could I also ask you this? As you know, this is being shown around the world in more than 130 countries. And um, what can you say about really whether um, the disclosure uh, of just the bare facts around a preventable adverse event um, does it really make a clinician immune from potential legal risk around accusations of uh, violation of the standard of care, malpractice? Um, what is it in our environment and what do you know about uh, such a threshold in other environments? Well, Jeff, you make a really good point that, um, you know, this is, uh, we're speaking to the, to the world at this point and everybody needs to understand the, the laws in their own country and jurisdiction. Those are those are very, very important, and that's a good point to make. I would say, however, that you know, even though it may be the case that certain facts won't come out, um, in the long run, I think all of us would agree that we do have an obligation to patients and families to be honest with them, and that in the long run, that is what we need to do in order to maintain their trust in us. So, Bob, could we turn to the next principle um, and, as in your guideline, um, express the appropriate form of apology and or regret, uh, and that in your guidelines, expressions of regret and empathy for what the patient is experiencing are always appropriate. Expressions of personal or institutional responsibility for the adverse event should only be made when the facts clearly indicate that the adverse event was an, an avoidable consequence of a medical error. What is the difference, if, um, help me, if I walk in and I say, I, I'm sorry that this event occurred, um, but then um, I shouldn't go any further by stating that on behalf of myself or the institution, um, we think a lapse in the standard of care occurred. Is that what we're trying to do here? 
Yeah, you know, this has been um, a very controversial issue in this country for a long time. And I should say that some of this may actually be unique to the English language. So for, for people listening, um, if this doesn't work in your language, you know, that, that may be the explanation. But in English, there's been many, many uh, people who have said, never say you're sorry to a patient. Never say, I'm sorry. Never say those words because it implies that you're to blame for what happened. And uh, we teach that that's actually wrong. And it goes back to the fact that the words I'm sorry have two very different kinds of meaning that are often confused. So the first meaning for the words I'm sorry is just as an expression of connectedness and solidarity and, and compassion, like, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that your mom's not doing well in the hospital, or I'm so sorry to hear that you didn't get that job you wanted. Uh, you know, that's not to say that I'm to blame for that. It's just, it's just a human expression of, of, of connectedness. And we should always be um, doing that with our patients and families. I'm so sorry this is happening to you. I can't imagine what this is like, you know, to go, to go through. This must be a nightmare for you. Those kinds of words we should always be using. But there's this second way that we use I'm sorry, which is when we are responsible and accountable. And so, you know, in the teaching, I think it's helpful to call that an apology. And we should apologize, but only when we are responsible and accountable. When we are, then we need to say, this is an event that should not have happened. We're responsible and we are apologizing to you. But the point is that while that first type is always appropriate, the apology is only appropriate when it's true. And usually we don't know that right after an event. Usually it takes an investigation before we've actually sorted out where the responsibility lies. So it would be a mistake to just walk in immediately and say, you know, I apologize for everything that's just happened. Um, uh, because you don't know yet whether an apology is the appropriate response. So at least in English, we separate these two things. And I think it's really important not to hamstring people into thinking that they shouldn't be saying, I'm so sorry for what's happening to you. You know, I don't think I've ever appreciated the difference um, in those two words, uh, as well as you just explained it. And I think I understand the distinction that um, one can readily be sorry um, that uh, something has occurred, as you, as you noted, uh, which is very different than apologizing, which has implications about the cause, responsibility. Absolutely. I wonder if I could turn now to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. In your answer, once again, could you please first state your city and country location? And the question is this. Does your ICU or hospital have a program to provide counseling to doctors and nurses and other clinicians who are involved in medical errors? Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, you know, I think that this is a really important question to ask because we have not fully appreciated the impact that these events have on doctors and nurses themselves. Let me show you some data we have on this topic. This was a survey that was done with physicians and they asked the question, have errors in your practice negatively impacted your life? And you can see the numbers there, job satisfaction, confidence and ability as a physician, professional reputation, anxiety about future errors, even your ability to sleep. And you know, Jeff, you know, when, when something affects your ability to sleep, you know it's operating at 
subconscious and unconscious levels that can really be harmful to your, to your psychological health. And, you know, over the years that I've been interested in this topic, um, I've, I've come to know a number of doctors and nurses who have literally left the field because of the impact of errors uh, in their life. Not only the, the guilt and regret they feel about errors that they were involved with, but actually more commonly, a disabling anxiety about the potential of making errors in the future. And so this has come to be called the second victim, the first victim obviously being the patient, but the second victim being those who are involved. And um, it can ruin lives, and it can ruin careers, and it can ruin people's mental health. And uh, so as, at the same time that we're promoting being open, transparent, and honest with patients and families, we have to pay attention to this as well. Uh, Bob, are there, um, are there programs around that, that can serve as models for others to um, investigate and inquire about? Absolutely, and we won't take the time to go into them in detail here, but we have a lot of uh, material in the curriculum that Open Pediatrics and our institute have developed um, with uh, some of the leading physicians describing programs at their institutions. We also uh, go through the uh, existing data and resources in, in the book that, uh, that we have available. So Bob, what are the attributes of a, of a person or her program who can guide uh, clinicians at this moment? And in, and in particular, I know you've done great work in developing this curriculum. What can our colleagues learn if they view the curriculum on this particular point? Yeah, you know, I, I think this is important because over the years when I've seen cases that go very, very badly, where families end up feeling um, that the clinicians weren't truthful with them, they're very angry, uh, lawsuits are involved, almost always there wasn't somebody around who was able to really help the clinicians move through this difficult process. You know, to, to kind of borrow a martial arts analogy, you need people in your unit or in your hospital who are really black belts around this topic. They understand the legal issues uh, wherever you live. Um, they are psychologically sophisticated in terms of being able to help families and understand what families want. They're able to provide the support to the clinicians that they need. They know what the follow-up uh, should be, what the available resources are. It's actually it's a complex um, package of knowledge and skills, and that's really what we're trying to provide here with the curriculum that we've developed so that hospitals around the world uh, will be able for at least, you know, hopefully one or a few, a few members to, to take the time to really become skillful at this because I think it does make a big difference in how well these cases go afterwards. Just to mention one thing in, in particular, um, we have found it to be very, very helpful if uh, there's an opportunity to role play the conversation before actually going in and having it with the patient and family. So that um, whoever's gonna have that conversation, and we almost always think it should be the clinicians involved, can be ready if the family says, you know, uh, I never wanna see you again. I want other uh, people involved. Um, you know, I'm demanding a second opinion. I'm demanding to be discharged immediately. Rather than you know, being confronted with that anger out of the blue, um, if there's somebody who can really coach you about that and prep you with these questions ahead of time, these conversations will go much better. 
Um, so Bob, a few concluding thoughts. Um, first, to our colleagues around the world, we're going to follow this session with a second session uh, where with physicians and nursing colleagues here at Boston Children's Hospital, we're gonna discuss some actual cases and we hope that you can join us um, in that session. And uh, Bob, you know, I, I suspect I speak for colleagues around the world in extending our thanks to you for creating um, such an important and rich curriculum. I remember many years ago, you and I talking about this and um, you know, it's a privilege to take care of critically ill children. Uh, but one of the special obligations is to um, speak candidly and compassionately to families about some very difficult issues, including the death of their child. Um, and this is, this is one of those very important conversations for which there's been really no guidance yeah, and no yeah. training. And uh, we thank you for providing that. Thanks, Jeff. I mean, uh, hard to imagine conversations that are more difficult than these. I mean, having to give a patient bad news about an adverse event when we may have had a role in bringing that about. Hard to imagine conversations that are more difficult. I think we've, we've touched upon a lot of the highlights here, but I, again, I, I do wanna say that in the curriculum we've developed, uh, we go into these in much greater detail and cover more material. And I, I really hope as many people as possible will take advantage of the resources that are available on Open Pediatrics. Terrific, thanks, Bob. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.